Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Today on the show, we have Jules Hartley. She had been involved in something called 3HO, which we will talk about. It's been around for a long time, and it has some subgroups and has been okay for some and not okay for others. You'll hear more about it. And so here's a little bit about Jules. After four successful years of working on TV shows and films in New York City, her manager at the time thought it would be a good idea for her to move to L.A. A couple of years into her Hollywood journey, she discovered Kundalini Yoga as taught specifically by Yogi Bhajan and the Golden Bridge Yoga Studio in Hollywood. She was instantly hooked and began what turned into a seven and a half year stint as a pretty hardcore and fanatical member of what is now the Rama Yoga Institute within 3HO itself and their brand of Sikhism. The yoga, meditation, total lifestyle given by Yogi Bhajan thus became her entire universe. And within a year or two, she was devoting anywhere between one to four hours at first, up to 18 hours a day, to specific practices that Yogi Bhajan said would ultimately make her life better and get her to ascend, whatever that means. I'm not quite sure. She ultimately ended up leaving Hollywood in 2018, very sick after her experiences completely broke as she had given her money over to this group. And she was confused and quite devastated by it all. In the process of exiting the yoga cult, as she calls it, in all its intense systemic control, her world was turned pretty much upside down. And so while she only goes to mainstream yoga classes now, She says she'll always believe that Sikhism itself is an incredibly beautiful culture and way of life, and she treasures all that she learned and experienced from India, especially, and the Punjabi along the way. Her own journey through health led her actually to apply to medical school, and she's currently a second-year medical student. And before I introduce her, Just want to let you know that in the one more thing before you go, after she finishes speaking with me after our great conversation, actually, I'll be talking about what's happened in the United States this last week, the election, the change in power, and the impact it's actually had on many people who have been involved in cults. Special thank you also to the people who, over the last few weeks, have become Patreon subscribers who have helped to support this show. It's really, truly helpful. As the people who listen weekly already know, I pay for this out of pocket. I do it as a public service. But I am so appreciative of everyone who is able to partner with me partner with us, with myself and my team, so that we can all continue doing this work to provide you 
with a resource that is hopefully helpful and educational and supportive and interesting. I find it interesting. I'm glad you do too. Thank you so much again. And if you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a subscriber for any amount you would like per month. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so, back to our guest today. Here's Jules Hartley. So welcome to the show today, Jules Hartley. It's been a while since I've gotten to see your face, but it's so nice to be able to talk to you today and especially to cover what you want to cover. So if you don't mind, take a few moments and introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jules Hartley. I lived in LA for over a decade and that's how I met you, Rachel. (laughs) I have worked in the entertainment industry for over 16 years, which is why I ended up in Los Angeles. And a couple of years ago, I made the decision to move to San Diego and to start a second career. And I am now in graduate school, medical school, actually. And yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. And I originally came to you, Rachel, because I had realized that maybe this thing that I had been involved with, this community, was a cult. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. And um, I remember, so I I guess I had found you through just Google. And I remember I came to one of your, you had a Wednesday, like a group, a a therapy Mm -hmm. group with multiple participants. Right. And I remember the first time I came to that, it was really hard for me to even speak at all because I had been so indoctrinated uh, into the, you know, this thinking that the walls have ears and people have psychic powers and they're going to attack me or find me or ruin my life, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So the last few years have definitely been a lot of processing and moving out of this system of control that I was involved mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Done a ton of research. I've listened to probably all of your podcast episodes as well as many others. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, a lot of reading, a lot of processing, a lot of therapy. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. You walked in, I remember to my office. I'm still doing the Wednesday night groups, but online. But I remember you walking in and and being very circumspect and needing to check things out and needing to also really interview me, which I value when, when people have been taken advantage of, when I see them acting on their own behalf and saying, okay, not so fast. I need to know who you are. And if I can trust you, I think, yay, yay. I'm so glad because then I feel more hopeful about that person being able to protect themselves. And that's as it should be that you, even if a person is quote unquote in a position of authority, they have to answer to you. And that's not the way it is in cultic groups at all. Uh, And also the paranoia that you were feeling, it's not unfounded. There are people who deal with having their phones tapped and their email checked out and being followed. And I mean, I've, I've had it myself. So I understand that it's not just this pure paranoia 
but that there is also this kind of indoctrinated paranoia, this sense whether or not they're following you, but just that they'll somehow know and you'll be punished and just that kind of lingering feeling. So tell me a little bit about that, what you were experiencing and how that is for you now. Yeah. So I, like I said, you know, at the time I was very afraid that they would hear my thoughts, <laughs> that they were following me, that you know, whatever. And I think that, so what's really interesting and what we'll probably mention is the role of social media in this whole falling of the house of cards of 3HO, which is the organization that I was involved with for mm -hmm. around eight years. And in terms of social media right now, these players, these, so the community has been very divided as these allegations have all come forward as these reports, as these personal stories, this onslaught of personal stories have mm -hmm. surfaced mm -hmm. because of social media and because of COVID-19, people being at home, people having their lives just completely upended, changed this, you know, Facebook groups, Instagram accounts, all of this has played a role into this sort of unveiling and, and transparency of what's going on with this group. Yeah. And so, you know, as far as what's actually happened to me, uh, I think it was probably January when I noticed that I was blocked from several Instagram accounts that are related to people who are still in the group. Oh. And my comments would be deleted and things like that. And so I was like, oh, okay. I'm not the only one. We, many dozens of us have shared on social media, like, oh, well, I got blocked today. <laughs> mm -hmm. <Right. laughs> kind of like a badge of honor at this Right. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting organization that maybe you can talk a little bit about and also how sometimes things like this can happen in these kinds of organizations. But I know I remember when I first started doing this work, hearing about 3HO, wondering what this was about, learning, you know, that it stood for healthy, happy, holy organization, right? Did I get the order right? And that started by Yogi Bhajan, who had another name, or he brought it to the to the West, right, in 1970-ish. Correct. And just seeing people looking very serene, happy, in outfits that also gave this sort of guise of kind of purity, kindness. Angelic. Angelic. Exactly right. And also just in the name, having it be healthy, happy, holy. It's an interesting name also because, it, let's say, if you were to start a group, you probably wouldn't pick those words, you would just call it something. But I think it's really showing the nature, I think, of kind of this narcissistic bent that I'm going to start an organization and I'm going to call it healthy and happy and holy, uh, even though I'm just a person, which is really, it's interesting now in really looking at the person, you know, themselves. And also an organization has the potential, I don't know about holy, I don't know if you can just decide something's holy, but it has the potential to be healthy and happy if the leader is healthy. And if the leader's really not, then it's almost unavoidable that it's going to be destructive. It's going to be as destructive as the leader is sort of internally. And so I'm wondering, first of all, what drew you 
you know, to this kind of teaching and to the organization and maybe what you started to notice that prompted you to leave? Yeah. Okay. So my history with the organization. So in 2010, I, I was attempting to be a working actress in Los Angeles as many tens of thousands of other young ladies are. And it's a struggle and the city's expensive and there's a lot of stress associated with it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any family out here and I had a limited amount of acquaintances and it's, it's a hard place to live. And I had kind of based my whole world the first two years I lived in LA around a relationship, a guy, I, a, a director who I had auditioned for and then ended up dating and, you know, very, very kind of serious. He actually wanted to marry me, but it wasn't the right time. Anyway, so I broke up with him. It was a very difficult breakup. I immediately got involved with another actor here. And then that was short-lived, only uh, seven months or something. And then we broke up. And emotionally, I was in a state of turmoil. I was struggling to pay my rent and wondering what I was doing. And on top of that, six friends and family members all died uh, from accidents or cancer within, it was like a five month period, Mm -hmm. right at the same time. And I was 27, 28 years old. And I just didn't, at that time, I didn't really have a paradigm for myself within which to understand death and all this emotional stuff that I was going through. And I was looking for something. And so I started on this sort of spiritual journey. I was seeking out meditation and different styles of yoga and something to bring me some sort of peace. I mean, on a daily basis, I'd be driving around LA and I would just be sobbing at my steering wheel. Like I was, I was emotionally, I was just lost and kind of a mess. I also was very into smoking cannabis at the time. And I think that that kind of put me in a weird sort of stunted emotional place as well. Hmm. I'll be honest, that was my experience of it. And so I, my ex knew a guy who had a yoga studio in Burbank. They were actors who had grown up together. And I knew about this studio and they were having a $40 for unlimited first month special. And so I decided to try out a bunch of classes. And one of the classes I went to was like an 8 a.m. Kundalini yoga class. I was having terrible insomnia at the time. And so, you know, I was up at 5 a.m., 4 a.m., 3 a.m. anyway. So 8 a.m., great. Let's just go to a yoga class. Uh And in the class, there were probably only a few people, but something, some exercise we did, I started to cry. Like Mm -hmm. there was a somatic shift in my body. Some sort of energy got moved, released, something you know, and, and I felt this tiny amount of sort of traumatic, undealt with kind of energy release. And I cried. Mm-hmm. And I told my best, one of my best girlfriends at the time, I told her about what had happened. She said, oh yeah, Kundalini yoga. Kundalini yoga is how I manifested my car, my apartment, all the film jobs that I've gotten. You should come to a class with me. There's a studio right down the street from you in Hollywood called Golden Bridge Yoga. 
let's go to a class. I said, okay, who's, who's a good teacher? When are you available? She said, come Thursday, 9 a.m. It's this teacher, Tej. You'll, you'll love it. So Thursday, 9 a.m., I went. And this studio, which is no longer in existence, Wanderlust had bought the space and then now they're out of business. But anyway, the studio itself has sort of a interesting history and we won't get into all of that. But they had a really, you know, high-end sound system. And there's this older lady sitting on a little stage at the front of the room. There's these crystals and artwork and it's a beautiful space. And there were over a hundred people in there, probably closer to 150 at 9 a.m. on a Thursday. And, you know, the music is blasting and we're all moving and, you know, chanting. And there was this sort of energy of victory and yes, I can. It was a little bit like a Tony Robbins or something. And I was immediately like, yes, this is it. And so I went back out to the lobby after the class and there was a lady working at the front desk and she said, so do you want to do the, you know, 10 class special for first time students? I said, yes, sign me up. And I'm in the lobby with my friend and she says, some, someone walked in that she knew and she's like, oh, hi, Jane, how are you? And, and then this lady is like, are you going to solstice? And my friend and this lady were talking and I was like, what solstice? And they started telling me that it was this camping that happens up in the mountains of New Mexico and that there's all this yoga and meditation and there's this special meditation that they do. And it's really life-changing and powerful. And, And I had been someone who used to go to Burning Man. So when I heard all this, I thought, oh, wow, this sounds like a spiritual burning man festival with music, but yoga, it's like the spiritual stuff that I've been looking for. So I said, well, where is this? I want to go. And so my friend gave me the website link and I signed up and I contacted the organization 3HO because I saw on the website that there was a discounted rate. I think it was... $200 versus like $800 if you did something called a work exchange. And so I, I contacted them and they said, yeah, we have a few openings left, even though we, you have to be here next Thursday. And I said, great, put me in, I'm coming out. And I asked my friend Christy if she wanted to go on a road trip and she was like, hell yeah. (laughs) Go Las Vegas too. And <laughs> so she and her friend actually, we all three of us drove out to New Mexico to a place that's a couple hours north of Santa Fe, deep in the mountains. By the way, there's a lot of interesting little sects, cults, religious pockets in northern New Mexico in the mountains, which is interesting. Yes, it is full of. <laughs> fringe organizations, uh, ones that are really under the radar. But yes, if anyone wants to go driving around, they will see a lot of very interesting things. Just make sure you like turn off on every little dirt road you see (laughs) and follow it 13 miles back into the hills. You'll find some interesting stuff. Right. And just make sure you still have enough gas in your cars. (laughs) And a spare tire. And a spare tire. Yeah. You don't want to get stuck. And hang on really tightly to you your body, your mind, and your soul. (laughs) That's an important trifecta right there. (laughs) 
So, so anyway, I landed at this event called Summer Solstice, and 3HO has an annual summer solstice and winter solstice. 3HO started by Yogi Bhajan. As you said, it was somewhere around 1969, officially, when the, the organization was made an official thing. And he was teaching his brand of Kundalini Yoga. Mm -hmm. So that festival, I think, started in the early 70s. I think possibly the summer of 1969 might have been their first summer solstice gathering in New Mexico. The history of it is available on the internet. And he, Yogi Bhajan, said, if you live your life around these solstices, and if you come to the solstices, everything will be taken care of in your life. So, you know, everything, you know, financially, your personal life, everything. Just get yourself to solstice. That's all you have to do. Just get yourself there. Anyway, I ended up at this summer solstice and it was 2011 and I got a very heavy dose of indoctrination there. I was there for nearly two weeks and for a week and a half and um, experienced my first white tantric yoga meditation, which at solstices is a three-day partner meditation. It is highly organized and you start early in the morning around 8 a.m. and sometimes they last until 8 p.m. And you do these meditations that are usually 31 minutes or 62 minutes at a time. But sometimes the format varies. But regardless, you're meditating for several hours with a very large group of people. And you do this for three days in a row, somewhere around the actual solstice. So the winter solstice, they actually do it on the 19th, 20th, and 21st of December. There's so many little details. I'm sure. I'm sure. When you said, though, that it was your first dose of that kind of indoctrination, did you feel something different? Did, were you thinking things in a different way? Were you going through a shift? So at the time, like I mentioned, I was trying to make sense of the... I felt very lost in my life. I felt very heartbroken. And I was dealing with grief from the loss of my friends and family members who had transitioned. So I was trying to make sense of all of this. And there was a lot of noise in my head regarding that, that I just sort of didn't know how to listen to. Noise in my body as well, if, if you know, that somatic stuff, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, grief is, grief is a whole thing. Um, Anyway, so I had started a blog right around the time I went to that first yoga class in Burbank. And my blog was called Spiritual Warrioress. And this was just a name that I came up with. And I kind of had this idea that every day I was going to do an entry and there was going to be some sort of a spiritual concept that I was going to explore in a blog entry. So while I was at this summer solstice, I would hear somebody talk about something. Um, For example, the sacredness of the number five or the power of wearing the color white. Uh (laughs) But I, this is, these are remnants of this indoctrination. My wardrobe has a lot of white in it. (laughs) I also have a lot of head wraps Kundalini yogis and three HOers wear turbans or head wraps. 
Um, so anyway, habits die hard. <laughs> and some habits don't have to die, right? Because they're not in and of itself bad or dangerous. They could speak to you in some other way without needing to be a part of the organization. And you know, you don't have to be a believer in 3HO in order to wear white. You can reclaim those things if you want to. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. Go ahead. No, that's a really good point. And in the wake of what's been going on with 3HO, which we'll talk about, a lot of people have been putting on these social media forums, have been emailing. I've gotten some personal messages. What are you, what are you doing regarding the teachings? You know, what do you, what do you take with you? What do you, you know, how do you pick and choose? And I'm not sure if you got a chance to read the olive branch report. Yes, thank you. And the very last line of it, which a lot of people have commented upon, is a quote by Yogi Bhajan that says, you know, follow the teachings, not the teacher. Can we follow the teachings, not the teacher? Something like that. Anyway, so yeah, it's a really good point you make. And somebody this week put on one of the forums on Facebook, one of the Facebook groups, a very good post about the five stages of grief in regards to the teachings. Oh, interesting. What he did is he took like one little tiny teaching, for example, something that we would chant as a greeting to one another, which was Satnam. So when you text somebody, when you email someone, when you call them on your, you know, phone's voicemail, Satnam is the first and last that's just what we do in this group. And it's supposed to mean truth is my identity, something like that, um, or the, the true name, the true identity. Anyway, so he took that and then he went through the, specifically through the five stages of how he, who is somebody who left the group in 1988, I think he said, you know, at first, you know, there was the anger and the denial and there was the bargaining and, you know, I don't want to chant this. I don't have to chant this. Well, what if I just chant this sometimes? Or, well, maybe there's a way, you know, going through all of, all of these. And then finally he ended up at the very end saying, you know, I like this Satnam. And maybe I'll use it sometimes. It's part of my toolbox, you know? And I know for myself, for example, we were taught and practiced over and over, inhale, sut, exhale, nom. I still do that. It happens. It's in me. And I have definitely had times where I've been like, oh, get out of here. Like, you can't. It's stuck in me. I'm indoctrinated. Um, But then... You know, I'm just like, you know what, it, it, it's a way for me to focus on my breath. Yeah. And so what, whether I'm using the word so hum or inhale, exhale, or in, out, you know, inhala, exhala, like it doesn't matter. Right. Right. So taking the charge out of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got off track there a little bit. So, but you were saying about the solstice, because I want to be able to move towards where things started to turn. But you're saying that there, I mean, you're, you're highlighting this very intense experience, not only of this meditation that goes on, but you are then separate from your own environment and everything sensorily is going to be different. So you're going to remember it. And it's going to make an impact. And you're with a whole group of new people and, and, and. So, and then there's so much energy around it that I could see it feeling very 
transformative at the time. Yes. And I should explain that we are given a wake-up call somewhere between 2.45 and 3.45 a.m. Oh. And that's when we go to start meditating. Wow. Because that's the best time to meditate. And there's all these prayers that... Okay, I need to back up a little bit. So Yogi Bhajan practiced Sikhism, which is the world's fifth largest religion, comes out of Punjab or what is now Punjab in India, that part of the world, that's where he was from. And when he came to Los Angeles and started teaching yoga, and by the way, Philip uh, Deslip, who is a PhD from UC Santa Barbara, wrote, has written some amazing papers, articles, his dissertation on the history of Yogi Bhajan and the Sikhism and sort of where his teachings came from okay, and kind of the main takeaway from his work is understanding that he was someone who was in the right place at the right time with the right people and that it was just sort of an environment in the late 60s early 70s that was just open and ready for a guru to come in and teach whatever the people around him kind of made it happen and that a lot of his teachings I don't want to use the word fabricated or pulled out of thin air because I'm sure they were inspired by some stuff that he was actually familiar with uh, as a yogi as a teacher as a person from South Asia but that you know a lot of these I mean he he was channeling or making it up or however you want to look at it but these these teachings are questionable. But he was, he identified as Sikh. Okay. So my understanding is that he started teaching Sikhism to his students as well. And so his students took that and kind of ran with it. And they were very, very hungry and thirsty for this, you know, a new kind of spirituality. And then combine that with this man who's saying, like, this is the ultimate uh, in a very, in a very, dare I say it, Punjabi way, or, you know, sort of a, a guru way of saying, like, you know, do this, and all things will come to you. Like, like I said, it, chant this mantra, and you will be wealthy beyond belief. Uh, do this practice, and you will clear 10,000 lifetimes of karma. You know, just these, this hyperbole of promises. <laughs> right. And so I'm curious about the promises. So what if the promises didn't come true? I mean, you can't you can't measure about clearing karma. You just there's it's an unmeasurable sort of thing. So you can someone can tell you, oh yes, you've cleared however many thousands of years of this. But how how do you know? You can't see it on a scale. You can kind of I guess feel it, or someone else can tell you that you achieved it. But in terms of riches, let's say so. Let's say you were just the same or poorer actually, after having gotten involved, how would that be explained? Yes, I definitely was poor. I saved no money while I was actually involved with the group, heavily involved. <laughs> That's another story. But, um, and and recently I have been able to finally start saving money and kind of get my life back on track. But um, yeah, so I'd like to say that, so for example, as you were saying at this solstice, you know, you're in this 
you're in this environment. So we are on a mountaintop at eight, 9,000 feet. There's this incredible natural beauty around and you know, you're with the elements, you're in nature. So for somebody coming from New York or LA where you're in this city and you know, this is just such a departure from normal everyday experience. And then the intention and the talk and the everything that's around is for your spiritual enlightenment, for your betterment, for clearing, for purifying, for, you know, so this is, I mean, you're just, you, you feel like you're just being shot, you know, like a rocket just shooting into outer space and you're doing all this meditation, which anyone doing that much meditation is going to feel some sort of a shift we know that meditation has some profound effects and all that yoga as well. Uh, you're going to feel something might be really, really sore and tired, but it's hard work. You know, it's really hard work. You, you have to, one of his things that he always said is, you know, you come in a piece of coal and it's, you, 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 you got to do all this hard work to come out a diamond on the other side. Uh-huh. Okay. So, um, and then there's the work exchange component. So I came in doing a very sort of nominal work exchange, which was lifeguarding a couple hours a day because I had a lifeguarding background. Then this ultimately segued and blossomed into me starting work at about 6 a.m. and sometimes going until midnight or later uh, in the position that I ended up doing as far as they call it SEVA. Uh, we like to use the nickname Slava. And so all of these work exchange positions, so most people who are there at Solstice are doing work exchange. Mm-hmm. And it's all just sort of for us, by us. I mean, this is not this is not bettering anything outside of the little insular group and festival there. And some people, like I said, are doing these really long hours and really hard physical labor and uh, you don't get paid, but you get an exchange to be there. Okay. And um, I remember a couple of times as the years went on, I started having some breakdowns regarding this. And like, I remember I went into the administration office there and I was like, I'm not getting paid for this. <laughs> right. You, some of you guys are actual employees of 3HO. So this is your job. You're being paid to be here, but I'm not being paid. <laughs> I had this moment. <laughs> Good moment. Yeah. And then I started volunteering more and more in Los Angeles and with the white tantric yoga courses. So I think they are offered on, if I'm, I may be incorrect in saying this, but something like 33 Saturdays throughout the year. And so there are like these one day courses around the globe. Okay. And they are facilitated by, somebody who knew Yogi Bhajan personally, initially it was his secretaries who were these tantric facilitators and some of them still were. I say were because I don't know if and when this white tantric yoga will ever continue again because it's a very large gathering, usually involving hundreds or thousands of people in an enclosed space. So, you know, due to COVID. Right, right. And then also what's going on with 3HO right now and, and um, yeah. Sears Inc. Corporation and everything. Yeah. 
But yeah, so I started volunteering more and more with that. And this was all under the premise that the more I was volunteering, the more karma I was clearing, the more energy I was putting out into the world that was helping everyone. I was uplifting. I was enlightening. I was being a light. One of Yogi Bhajan's quotes was, you know, be the lighthouse, live light, travel light, spread the light, be the light. And so, you know, it's part of this, it's this white clothing that you wear, all this meditation, you're, you know, brightening and lightening your aura, your electromagnetic field, it's, it's all tied in. So I thought that by doing all of this volunteering for yoga classes and workshops in Los Angeles and elsewhere and doing all this volunteering for white tantric yoga was going to, I don't know, bring me to ascension, enlightenment, whatever. Yeah. Okay. So it's an interesting thing because a lot of people have that in their group that they were, I don't know. I mean to reduce it down to what it is a lot of the time they're used as free labor and uh, I hate to say it in such a base way, but you know, it's sort of what keeps the organization going and without having to pay. And so I think that sometimes people do want to give back to something that they're getting something from, but then it's sort of out of balance at some point because then it, you know, you might not be getting as much from it, but you still need to be giving. And then you're expected, I think, to start giving more and more. And then, you know, that's when you get depleted. And that's where the pressure can be on to not back away from you making your commitment to helping out in this way or that way. And you can kind of forget why you're there and who you're there for. And so I'm wondering, I know you said that you were there for eight eight years you were involved with it? Yeah. So let me give you the timeline. So that was uh, June, 2011. I went to that solstice. I traveled a bit and then I was back in Los Angeles and started those yoga classes at Golden Bridge. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I started going every single day, sometimes twice a day, which is very common. Um, And back to this whole idea of being, you know, sort of in a removed kind of reality or a, a departure from normal you know, the yoga itself mm-hmm. does get you stoned high, however you want to describe it. Um, I really loved your podcast with Yuval Leor, and I've listened to other ones that he's done, and he talks about the states of awe and fervor. When you're getting up so early in the morning um, and not sleeping very much, you're already in an altered state. Then you add on to that hours of yoga, labor, being in the hot sun, um, meditating, doing uh, hours of breath work, pranayama, which, for example, halotropic breath work, some people may be familiar with. I mean, there are actual physiological effects that, that do happen. But the thing is, you're kind of, you're loopy. I used to joke, I used to call the students who would go once or twice a day to classes, you know, kundaluni or kundalunatics. And I was definitely one of them. (laughs) It came in. Um, I mean, it was, it was amazing. And then, you know, you're also led to, because it's sort of the nature of the new age ish people who are attracted to this or around this, um, you know, there's, they're, they're hawking crystals and they're selling relics from 
South and East Asia. And there are workshops or talks with various spiritual people who have written books or who are monks or whatever. Like this is all part of it. And so that was at Golden Bridge, certainly that studio that I was going to and then eventually started working at uh, just a couple months later. So I started working there in 2011 for free, by the way. Wow. And I worked for free for 15 months at that studio. And I wasn't the only one. For 15 months, I did free labor. <laughs> and I was told that eventually I would get a paid position. Uh, I was offered free yoga classes, but because I was going so often, it uh, the hours that I was working didn't add up to, I still had an unlimited membership, in other words. And I ended up racking up hundreds of free yoga classes that I never actually used because the studio ended up going under and closing. Anyway, so I was there and I started this teacher's training that November, November of 2011, because another student who was going to these workshops and classes there was like, hey, you should come do teacher's training. I was like, oh, what's teacher's training? And I remember at first I was like, I don't know if that's like a deep dive into this stuff. Like, I don't know. And also it's $3,500 or $3,750 or $4,250, whatever it was. I was like, that's a lot of money. Like that would literally be every last penny I have. Plus I'd have to be on a payment plan. Plus I'd have to somehow find this. I mean, like, you know, I just, I cannot afford that. And, um, you know, and this student, this lady who was a teacher as well, she was like, yeah, well, you know, you can be on the payment plan and, and just, you just, just pay as you go. And I was like, okay, well, let me, let me try it out. And these classes, these workshops, as I kind of had started to mention, were a really huge production. So there was this teacher, Tej, and her ex-husband, they were set up and married by Yogi Bhajan. Yogi Bhajan, by the way, made hundreds of arranged marriages, if not thousands, probably in the hundreds. And he would have these group weddings. And so he would just pick out people and say, you and you, you're going to marry just like that. At any sort of a yoga class or gathering, like you two get married. And then at solstice, there'd be 70 couples getting married at once. Anyway, those two got married, Tej and Haraji. I don't know what year, but they were, you know, longtime students since the 70s. And Haraji was involved with one of the larger business frauds, uh, felonies that was part of 3HO. And I think it was federal. There was definitely state. Um, but he went to prison for essentially, it was fraud. His nickname is the Toner Bandit. So he was part of this boiler room, this call room in Los Angeles at their ashram where there's a little Sikh temple that they built. And then there's sort of these offices next to it and upstairs. Anyway, there was a group of these yoga students of Yogi Bhajan's who, and all of this is available online if you want to read the firsthand accounts, um, but they were told that if they sold products over the phone and then never delivered the products, but like got the payment because it was over the phone, it wasn't stealing. <sighs> okay. So hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars were stolen 
from businesses uh, in this toner, like ink toner scandal, that these people, they were running um, a fraudulent business. And this is not the only one. I mean, there, there are many other, there was drug running involved, a lot of drug running, smuggling. There were other sort of fraudulent activities. Anyway, Hari Jiwen is the one who kind of took the hit. I think him and maybe one other guy took the hit for this illegal activity. And he went to prison for a couple of years and had to pay a large sum of money. And this is the major sort of watershed moment that's happened in 2020, like I said, because of social media. Mm -hmm. In January, a book was published uh, by one of Yogi Bhajan's former secretaries. And Mm -hmm. in it, she details her personal experience with him and how she was sexually involved with him. I found out about that a couple of years before the book was published. Mm-hmm. I personally found out about that and spoke with her and, and several of the other secretaries, former secretaries. And at least some of these people are the ones that are the tantric facilitators, by the way, uh, for white tantric yoga. Okay. So I found out that they were all sexually involved with Yogi Bhajan. Um, and so that was, that popped the bubble for me <laughs> in a big way. Um, and so I was like, oh my gosh, you know, here's this man who preaches celibacy, purity, monogamy, marriage, uh, has all these very specific, descriptive, uh, particular teachings regarding sexuality and sex. And none of them involve group sex, substances, or sleeping with dozens of different women, all younger than, like, none of that is what he prescribed. Um, so it was like, okay, this is a major departure from, he's not acting, he, what he's doing is not what he's saying. <laughs> not at all. No. no. So anyway, um, when this book was published in January, Many, you know, it spread like wildfire, the news of this and all of the tens of thousands, if not more yoga students and 3HO followers, you know, around the globe, all of a sudden had to come to terms with the fact that this man who died in 2004, by the way, but that his teachings maybe are bogus in some regard, Mm -hmm. that what he was giving us as a way to live, maybe you know, what, what does it even mean? You know, if, if the man doesn't practice what he preaches kind of thing, then as soon as that book was published and everybody started kind of processing that the stories started emerging, the personal stories of abuse and these lawsuits that, you know, had originally happened in the eighties started resurfacing and People started speaking and former members of 3HO who'd left decades ago started coming forward and talking about their abuses. And then the second generation of 3HO, which are the children of the first generation, Mm -hmm. started talking about all of their abuses, having gone to the boarding school in India, um, but also here in the United States and just how awful it was growing up in a cult and all the trauma and all the abuse that they went through. And it's so extensive. So for me, it was kind of like, I was like, okay, so he was another like guru who had a bunch of women, like no big deal. But when I started hearing about the child abuse stuff, I was like, this is a really major big deal. And this report that came out last week, the Anolive branch, which was a third party appointed by 3HO, they spent upwards of $500,000 to get this report 
done, uh, investigated, reported upon, and published, uh, which is a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they themselves are a, a Buddhist organization out of Pittsburgh, I believe. And um, I think they were involved with the maybe the Shambhala revelations. But, you know, the report, I think the main thing is that that report detailed Yogi Bhajan's sort of sexual misconduct. And it's horrifying. It is a horrifying report, uh, much worse than I think any of us collectively had any idea or knowledge of, because most of these things, as the report mentions, happen behind closed doors. And the, the most important thing there, I think, is this abuse of the student-teacher relationship. Because Yogi Bhajan was a teacher or a person with a different you know, power status, and he was taking in grooming, whatever. He had these young women as his sex partners, and there was rape involved with some of these women. And um, I don't know, it's 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 a lot. And I think that we're all kind of processing that right now. Those of us who identify as being members of the community, <laughs> right? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. But the report itself only focused on that, did not focus on the child abuse, did not focus on the illegal business activities, did not focus on like the, the drug running, for example. Um, so what I want to say is that that's just the tip of the iceberg, just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more to uncover as far as stuff that has gone on in relation to 3HO, its businesses, its worldwide community. And, um, but it's, it's a very interesting and amazing sort of experience to be living through this, as I said, this fall of the house of cards, this, this revelation and to have social media so that people around the world are able to talk about this and process this together. Right. And so it's, yes, the story is unfolding. It has started to unfold. And and you're right. If there's so much that went on on so many different levels with children, with women, with um, drugs, with uh, illegal business practices, et cetera, et cetera, then there are many angles uh, that are being explored, I'm sure, right now as we're speaking. And a lot more that's going to come to the surface. And so I think what what people do need to understand not only is what it's like for the people who have experienced these things firsthand, of course, how horrific, and also what you're talking about, the people who dealt with kind of being taken advantage of in, in a lighter way, so to speak, you know, I mean, free labor, it's not such a, shouldn't be taken so lightly because it's really wrong. But that if there wasn't necessarily this kind of abuse still, there is this feeling that you're having that here you gave over your trust to a spiritual organization to heal you, to heal you of these losses and the the trauma that comes from that when things happen in such close succession and you're trying to figure out life. And you're trying to kind of anchor yourself with something that makes sense. And then suddenly when it all gets turned on its head, then what do you do? And so by that point, what you hope is that you've connected with other people as you have, which is wonderful, who can say, okay, we're in this together. This is our anchoring. We can see what is. And that's really important. 
and finding other ways also to anchor yourself. But I'm sure it's going to interfere with your trust, putting your trust in the next person who says, oh, I can help you. (laughs) So you're like, not so fast. So thank you for not only for sharing some of the, the, the tip of the iceberg of your story, because I know there's a lot more, but a lot more. Yeah. So hopefully we can talk another time and fill in some of the blanks. But I, I know that you're on top of what's happening now and staying up on the news and connecting again with people and offering your voice and your support. And it's a really wonderful thing. And so where can people find more information as it's unfolding? Yeah. Okay. Rama Wrong is this Instagram account that so if you are currently involved or have been involved with Rama, Tej, or Hari Jiwan and are realizing, so they left, they made a public announcement that they left KRI, which is the Kundalini Research Institute, which is the official overseeing organization that kind of is the recourse for anyone who teaches Kundalini yoga, gets certified through them. They are with Yoga Alliance, et cetera. They left. They announced this a month or two ago. So now they have absolutely no recourse. Okay. I mean, these people are out there on their own running a cult. Okay. Um, and, and the abuses there are extensive. So their account on Instagram is at Rama wrong. You can read about details, personal accounts on Facebook. Uh, one of the most helpful groups for anyone who has been involved with three HO is called, I think it's Premka beyond the cage. Um, because the book that she wrote was called White Bird in a Golden Cage. So this group is called Premka Beyond the Cage, or maybe 3HO Beyond the Cage. Okay. There are upwards of 7,000 members there and the stories and the processing. And it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing resource. And then your podcast and others as well. Thank you. And I'm so glad that you are, you're free from all of that and that you're starting the next chapter in your life. And I wish you well and i yes i'm sure we will talk soon okay thank you rachel you're welcome one more thing before you go one of the things that jules talked about was how she got a false kind of impression originally about the leader of this organization and about the organization itself and also about the individual teachers who she had met along the way, they came across as people who could push her towards her better future and could help her see the success of her hard work and all of her sacrifice, so much sacrifice. And that they came across as people who were wise and devoted, trustworthy, and really cared. But she found over time that she was being mistreated along with many others, and she was being used and lied to, and that her life was not getting better. In fact, it was getting derailed. And it was only after she left and disengaged from the organization and those leaders and those teachers was she able to get her life actually back on track. And I wish her the best of luck and a lot of success and happiness as she moves her life forward. It's wonderful to see. So while at this point, as you know, I would continue expanding on this notion further and talking more about my conversation with Jules. But it would also seem odd at this point, too, for me to not shift gears. And with Jules' permission, I want to speak about the election that just took place 
in the United States. And it ties in with Jewel's story. The results came in definitively just a few days ago, and for many people, there was a great sigh of relief and an interesting insight for many that they suddenly felt their shoulders relax, that they had been under a great amount of strain and stress, and they were getting the sinking feeling on election night that it was just going to continue for four more years, and where would we be after four more years? I don't mean to dismiss or to disregard or disrespect the people who were unhappy with the way the election went and were hoping to have the president continue. I just want to be able to talk about the following, which is, I received many emails and texts and phone messages, Facebook messages, tweets, wherever you get messages now from people in a lot of different ways, who were involved in cults who talked about how, when they saw how the president in the office still operated and got so much of the country to fight with the other part of the country and to have this us versus them or them versus us mentality and to not have what they said was the maturity of a statesman, but rather the immaturity of a child. And to be in a country where they didn't feel represented or heard or safe And they truly wanted to feel rest assured that outside of their cult environment or their controlling relationship, that the rules that applied to the general population would also and should apply to the leadership, that people could question the leaders and would not have to worry about being immediately punished or banished for doing so, that it was okay to have a difference of opinion as they saw our president having one person after the other be fired, one person after the other take the fall for him, one person after the other lie for him, one person after the other become more militant in order to please him. They felt that after leaving their cult and seeing what was happening within the United States, that they had not gone from being in a controlled kind of prison to being free but instead felt that they had gone from out of the frying pan and into the fire. So truth is, I'm not talking about politics. I'm not a politician. I'm really talking more about accountability and personality. I'm not talking about how the country is run, but rather the character of the person running it and how that makes a difference. There is something that a lot of people who have been very dismayed by have seen and have shared with me and many others about the hatred, the intolerance, how those feelings were emboldened during this last almost four years, and how people's primal selves, the release of their phobias and isms, the racism and anti-Semitism, etc., really were running rampant because they knew the person in charge would not only not care, at the very least, but might even be happy that he had stoked those fires so he could use it all to create more division. People who left cults also talked about the similarities with having a leader who just expects and demands unquestioning devotion and who expects that you will go along when they want to take credit for everything good and they'll expect that you'll believe them when they blame everyone else for everything bad, where a leader feels entitled rather than empathetic. When a leader tantrums 
and people cower, where a leader creates infighting rather than helping people be inspired to be their better selves. During Biden's acceptance speech, he quoted the words, lead not by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. Well, that takes humility. And cult leaders do not have an overabundance of that. There was also a worry for people who had come from other countries where there had been fascism and totalitarianism. Everyone needed to be singularly minded. They felt so proud and happy to be in the United States, relieved to go from despotism to democracy, but had seen that wearing away and were so afraid that the floor would fall out from underneath them as it had before, and they would no longer have any safeguards. There are also other similarities with the openness of information when you have a leader who has so many secrets and who attacks the truth tellers and the newscasters and will say, I never said it, even though there could be a split screen with a video of them saying it, who will try then to gaslight others, in fact, try to gaslight a whole nation. Then you can imagine how relieving it is finally to feel that things will now once again, hopefully, and we think so, that they'll make sense that there will be a leaning on science and truth. There will be a goal of decency and a value placed on being human. Kamala Harris quoted John Lewis, who said, democracy is not a state, it is an act. Very true. Whenever people are to walk the walk rather than just talk the talk, it's a collection of actions that matter. It does not mean that someone just gets to sit back and take credit for things that they didn't do or have other people do the work for them. And the response so far to the coronavirus has been, in my opinion, and many others, shameful. Especially recently, putting people at risk by creating huge gatherings so that people can come to adore you and not seeming to care about your followers' physical safety. It reminds me, actually, of so many cult leaders and even the character in the movie Shrek, Lord Farquaad, who sends people into battle to basically feed his ego and says, some people will die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. So we will soon have a leader unlike a cult leader who we think and we have every reason to believe, is kind and devoted to people, no matter if they like him or not, and who might even apologize when he feels he's done something wrong or has not done enough, and who also is not threatened by sharing the role and the power with a woman who is whip-smart and unabashedly outspoken and draws people's attention. A cult leader would never tolerate sharing the stage with someone who might cause people to look away from them even for a moment. So again, while it's of course clear who I am talking about and referring to, I'm also really just talking about other issues and what I see as bigger issues. 
And back to this idea that many people gave a collective sigh who hadn't realized that they had felt imprisoned for years, it's extremely powerful and healing. There's kind of this sense like the parents have arrived back home and the kids who were put in charge for too long need to go play somewhere else. But we will also need to be reminded of the sobering reality that somebody with that sort of personality could not only be elected, but could be followed and listened to, could get under the skin of so many, could bring out the worst in people, and who could cause people to say things and do things and believe things just because the person in charge has given them permission to do so. And a leader who did not follow a moral or ethical code in his own personal, professional, or political life And that for so many people who followed him and still do, that didn't matter. But I think it should have. It always should have. So for those of you who realize about yourselves, actually, to be very honest and reflective, that you are actually able to get swept up in a movement, that you listen to the loudest, most persuasive voice in the room, And that there's something about you that wants to please the most mercurial person in the room. That at the end of the day, you end up saying things and doing things that you may not have meant to that degree or may not have actually ever really said out loud, even if you thought them. But that you were able to be wound up to do all of this. It's a time, actually, for you and maybe all of us to look back. Not in shame but rather to see that you and so many other people, and myself as well at certain times, can be prone to being persuaded. And I urge you to look inward, to develop your core, to really find out what you believe in, who you are, how you really feel, and develop a strong definition of how you want to live your life and what you stand for. Again, so you can't get pushed and pulled as easily. Because actually, as my father used to say, if you don't know who you are, there are people in the world who will benefit far too much from defining you. And they will usually define you in a way that only works for them. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.